Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor and Joe as they go on a delivery mission for the Time Lords in The Mutants. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteamp at teamproductions.com. But before we go into the summary, seeing as how we're talking about mutants, I think it is very apropos to mention the fact that the 1990s, the 1990s X-Men series is getting a reboot. <laughs> I am so excited. Is it a reboot or is it a continuation? Sorry, it is a continuation of where the story uh, went, uh, left off. Okay, so see, I was thinking about this because you said this to me before. Hmm. So the 1990s cartoon, my understanding is there was like a season or two of continuous story and then it changed over to like this high school story. So is it picking up like this, the, no. um, what the fuck is his name? I'm thinking Sinister Six, it's not Sinister Six, it's not what I mean. Um, Mr. Sinister? Yeah, like when he had like Gene and Cyclops. Is that where it's picking up from? No. So thanks to that wonderful book that you gave me previously on the X-Men for my birthday, which is awesome. I recommend anyone to read it. Um, what happened was Fox Kids didn't like where Eric LeWald was going with it because he was doing like each season would be a story. Mm. Like it would be continuous, continuation, serialization, much like Doctor Who. Mm. Uh, and But like, even though it was amazing, he wanted to like just try to be as episodic as possible. So they created story arcs where like little teasers, uh, fight, like you know, 30 second, one minute teasers at the ends of certain episodes would lead towards another arcing story. And then they had it planned out that it was only going to run for like, I think, 65 episodes and mm. they would have a proper resolution. But it was so insanely popular that Fox said, no, you need more episodes. So they scrambled together something and they ended up not making the ending that they wanted to. So it's left on an open ending where Xavier has to go to the Shi'ar homeworld in order to be saved from um, an injury he got. Mm. Uh, the high school thing was a follow-on series called X-Men Evolution, where basically the majority of the kids, the majority of the X-Men are made kids, with the only two adults being Storm and Wolverine, who are the instructors at the school. Oh, okay. And the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are also teenagers. And... Like, I didn't mind it. I thought it was a very nice, fresh take on stuff. And it also has Chris Judge as Magneto. That's awesome. It is. And it also has a fantastic season finale with Apocalypse. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so, everyone, check out, obviously, the 90s series of X-Men. It is forever in my heart. And also check out X-Men Evolution. <laughs> but now to discuss our mutants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, episode one. On the planet Solas, a raggedly dressed old man is being chased through a swamp by a group of armed and uniformed men. The leader of the men, the Marshal of Solas, urges his men on to find and kill the man, referring to him as a mutt. They eventually come across the body of the old man, who seemingly died from exhaustion, and see that his spine has two rows of ridges running down it. The Marshal orders one of his men, Stubbs, to call back to their base and advise that the mutant that they were chasing is dead. Meanwhile, back in Unit HQ... The doctor is working on a component for Bessie, and Joe is urging him to finish so that they can go for lunch. Suddenly, a strange orb materializes on the doctor's workbench, and he says that there's a message from the Time Lords. Joe tells him to open it, but he says that it will only open for the person that it was intended for, and that he is more than likely to be its messenger. 
At that moment, the TARDIS prepares to take off, and the Doctor tells Joe to stay behind as he prepares to deliver the message, as it could be dangerous. However, she dashes in just before the door closes and the TARDIS dematerializes. It then rematerializes in the cargo bay of a starship Skybase 1, which is in orbit around Solas. A voice comes over the PA system, ordering the duty personnel to escort the new arrivals through the decontamination process, and the Doctor assumes that their arrival has been expected. However, the announcement is actually for the attendees of a conference being held on the ship between the delegates from Solas and the delegates from Earth Empire, who are referred to as the Overlords by the native Salonians. Amongst the Salonian delegates are Varen, who is a staunch supporter of the Overlords, and Kai, who wishes for Solas to be given independence. Kai says that he has come to protest the hunting of his people, but Varen says that they are trying to eliminate the diseases that the mutants carry with them. Kai says the mutations are a result of the Overlords, as their technological changes to the planet poisoned the once clean atmosphere. The two Salonians prepare to fight, but are stopped by the arrival of Stubbs, who orders all the Salonians to be sent to decontamination. He tells Varen that the Marshal wants to see him alone, and so Varen orders his bodyguard to remain behind. After he goes, a guard notices that the bodyguard is trying to hide the mutation on his hand. He tries to raise the alarm, but is knocked unconscious, and the bodyguard flees the scene. In the cargo bay, Joe asks when they are, and the Doctor tells her that they are in the 30th century, during the twilight of Earth's galactic empire. Growing impatient, he takes out his sonic screwdriver and gets the door open. Joe reminds him to take the orb with him, and they make their way into the ship. They become increasingly confused when they can find no one to greet them, especially after an alert was raised after he opened the door. He prepares to use the sonic screwdriver again when Joe points out someone coming towards them. The person turns out to be Varen's bodyguard, who tries to attack them, but they manage to get through the door before he strikes. Meanwhile, Stubbs and one of his men, Cotton, stop their game of chess when another alert is raised and go to investigate. They find the Doctor and Joe trying to hold the door closed against the bodyguard. Stubbs tells them to get out of the way and when the bodyguard enters the room he kills him. Stubbs then orders the Doctor and Joe to follow him and Cotton to the reception area. He then reports the presence of the mutant Salonian to the Marshal, who was waiting for Varen to bring him one of his most trustworthy men to do a job for him. The Marshal orders Varen to be brought back to him immediately. He is joined by his superior, an Imperial Administrator, who berates him for the lapses in security protocols at such an important moment. The Marshal is shocked to hear that the Salonians are to be given in their independence to ease the strain on the failing Empire. He suggests that they should take over the plant themselves, but the Administrator says the natives would never agree to it as the majority of the population hold the Marshal responsible for the poisoning of the atmosphere. Instead, he says that, like a lot of other Imperial Marshals, he will most likely be given a clerical office on one of the inner worlds. The Administrator leaves and the Furious Marshal repeats his order to have Baron brought to him immediately. The Administrator goes to the break where the Doctor has just finished explaining the colonisation process of the Empire to Joe. The Doctor tries to tell him that he has been sent from the Imperial Command, but this, his story is very flimsy and so he informs the Administrator of the message orb he has received. However, the orb doesn't open for him, nor does it open for the recently arrived Marshal. The Marshal tries to blast it open, believing the Doctor is lying when he asks him to open it. He then labels the two time travellers as saboteurs when he is informed that they were found with the mutant, but the Doctor says that if they were saboteurs then everyone would be dead. The Doctor then suggests for the Marshal to bring it to the delegates to see if it will open for one of them, but the Marshal rejects it and orders Stubbs to make sure that they don't leave the brig. Stubbs brings in a viewing orb so they can watch the delegation. They just missed the Marshal speaking to Varen, who has brought his son to be the agent for the task. The Doctor subtly motions to Joe and she distracts Stubbs, allowing the Doctor to sneak behind the unaware guard and knock him out. 
They then flee from the brig. In the meeting hall, the administrator is giving a speech talking about the history of the colonization of Salas, but he's interrupted by Kai, who starts to whip his supporters into a frenzy. While this is going on, the marshal nods at Varen's son to look at the device that he had given to his father to give to him. The marshal then causes a distraction, calling for Kai to be arrested as the administrator seeks to calm him down. Varen's son uses the device and a poison dart strikes the administrator. Kai, thinking that he and his followers have been led into a trap, flees from the hall and runs past the doctor and Joe, who have been trying to get Cotton to let them in. The orb opens as Kai runs past and the doctor calls after him. Joe says that she will get him back and follows on after him. They are followed by the marshal and two of his men, who are in turn followed by the doctor. Kai grabs Joe and uses her as a hostage to try and get to the transmat beam, but the others arrive and against the doctor's protests, the marshal orders his men to open fire. Episode 2. The guard's shots hit the transmat pod just as Kai and Joe are sent down to Salas. The marshal says that they won't get far as Joe will need an oxygen mask as the air on the planet is toxic to humans. He then sends an alert down to the surface. On Salas, Kai tries to leave Joe behind as he says that she won't be safe in the poison stair outside, but she insists upon going with him. Kai knocks down a guard that tries to shoot them, and together they leave the transmat bay and go out into the wilds. Their marshal reports this to the doctor and explains Joe probably will last about an hour on the surface. The doctor tries to get him to increase the search for her, but the marshal says that with the assassination of the administrator, Solace is now under his command due to martial law. He then tries to blackmail the doctor by saying that he will help if he agrees to open the orb to see what messages it contains for Kai. Even though he says it is unethical for him to do so, the doctor reluctantly agrees in order to save Joe. He has to be taken to the laboratory, and the marshal agrees in orders for the search for Joe to be intensified. The marshal brings him to the lab, and the doctor notices that they seem to be built primarily for atmospheric controls. He then sees a circuit about to overload and stops it, which causes a man to come in from another room, and he demands to know who has been tampering with the equipment. The doctor apologizes, and the man, whose name is Jaeger and is the chief scientist on Skybase, starts to give out to the marshal that his experiments are at a critical juncture and cannot be interrupted. The marshal interrupts him when he starts to disclose the nature of the experiments and tells him that he has to help the doctor in opening the orb. He is then called away to deal with Baron's son, who is waiting for him in his office. Down on the surface, Joe is struggling to keep up the pace and eventually has to be carried by Kai as they are pursued by Stubbs and his men. They stop and Kai lies in wait to ambush one of Stubbs's men. He manages to knock him out and then takes his oxygen mask to give it to Joe. He then takes her to a nearby cave and resuscitates her, saying that she will be alright there as it is daylight that makes the atmosphere poisonous. Joe tells him that she followed him because of the orb and says that they need to go back to the doctor in order to find out more. Up on Skybase, the marshal goes to his office and once there, kills Varen's son with the weapon that he used on the administrator. And Varen walks in just as he dies and the marshal tries to convince him that his son was in league with Kai and tried to assassinate him as well. Varen doesn't believe him and flees when the marshal tries to kill him as well. The marshal puts out an alert and recalls Stubbs and his men who have just discovered the body of the unconscious guard. Stubbs says that he would send someone back to recover the guard later and orders his men to follow him. In the laboratory, Jaeger informs the doctor that Solace was colonised due to its rich deposits of the mineral Tesium, a highly sought-after fuel source, which has now been exhausted and that the plant will become a habitat colony instead. The doctor says that the Salonians will not agree to it, but Jaeger smugly says it is no longer their planet. The two then get into a clash of egos as the doctor attempts to reverse the particles of the box in order to turn it inside out and make the messages within visible. It starts to work, but the proton beam hitting the orb shorts out. 
They start to repair the proton beam, but are interrupted by the marshal, who asks if they have seen Varen. He tells them that Varen was in league with Kai, and that they organised the assassination of the administrator. He also tells them that Varen is starting to mutate, and the doctor asks to help in the search. The marshal initially refuses, but Jaeger subtly signals for him to allow it. The doctor leaves with the recently arrived stubs, and once they are gone, Jaeger tells the marshal that with the doctor's help, the atmospheric control equipment could be ready sooner than expected. In the cave, Kai tells the confused Joe that Earth has become an industrial world and with an atmosphere as toxic as Solace's has become. He tells her that his people were turned into a slave workforce and have started to mutate as a result of the atmosphere being poisoned. He tells her that the mutants are hunted by the marshal and his men for fun, with the survivors taking refuge in the cave systems. Up on the sky base, the Doctor and Stubbs enter the ship's hydroponics lab and Stubbs calls out to Varen to make it easy on himself, much to the Doctor's disgust. Suddenly, Varen appears behind Stubbs and forces him at knife point to surrender. The Doctor picks up Stubbs' dis- discarded gun and shoots Varen's knife as he's about to stab the helpless Stubbs. The Doctor tells Stubbs that there is no sign of any mutation on Varen, who reveals that the Marshal killed his son. The Doctor then puts all the evidence together and informs Stubbs that the Marshal was behind the Administrator's death in an attempt to stop Solace from being given independence. The Doctor tells him to keep Varen safe until he manages to find Joe. They make their way to the Marshal's office, who at that moment is talking to Cotton. He tells him to keep looking for Joe, but orders him to tell the Doctor that they have already found her and that she is currently in a field hospital on the surface. The Doctor enters, and the two men fall for each other's lies, and the Marshal says he can see Joe once Marshal Law has been lifted. In the meantime, the Marshal tells the Doctor that he can continue to help Jaeger in his work. In the lab, Jaeger outlines his plan to bombard the planet with ionized rockets, which would protect the planet from the solar radiation responsible for making the atmosphere poisonous. The Doctor angrily points out that it would kill every Salonian, but Jaeger doesn't care, saying Earth needs the planet more. Cotton then arrives and tells Jaeger that the Marshal wants to see him. Once they're alone, Cotton tells the Doctor that Stubbs informed him about Baron, and that he reveals the ruse about Joe. The Doctor resolves to go down to the surface and asks Cotton to help him switch the transmat power supply to manual whilst he overloads the ship's power supply. They are interrupted by Jaeger, who angrily tells Cotton that the Marshal didn't want to see him. Cotton makes his excuses and then leaves to carry out his part of the plan. Meanwhile, Stubbs meets Varen and informs him of the plan and says that he can head to the surface as well. The Doctor carries out his part of the plan and the resulting overload blows the computer screen, knocking Jaeger to the floor, allowing the Doctor to escape. He makes his way to the transmat, but is attacked by Varen, who thinks he has been tricked. Episode 3 The Doctor manages to activate the transmat and they are both taken down to the surface. Once there, the Doctor uses his Venusian Aikido to get the upper hand against Varen. The Doctor insists that he is here to help his people, but he needs to find Kai first. Varen reluctantly agrees, but tells the Doctor he will need an oxygen mask to survive on the planet's surface, but the Doctor confidently states that he will be fine. Varen says that there is currently a firestorm happening in the sky, and the Doctor says that they can use that to their advantage, and so they leave the transmat base. In the cave, Joe and Kai watch as the firestorm rages across the sky, with Kai saying that they only started when the marshals started interfering with the atmosphere. Suddenly, a large bipedal insectoid creature staggers into the cave, startling Joe. Kai reveals that the creature is actually the final mutated form of those infected by the toxic atmosphere, and he uses a burning branch to chase it away. Kai then says that they will be safer further back in the caves. However, they actually wander into a nest of the mutants, and Kai tells Joe to hide whilst he tries to chase them away. Up on Skybase, the Marshal berates Jaeger for falling for the Doctor's trick, and tells him to begin the bombardment. 
Jaeger says that he is not ready and it could be da- dangerous, but the marshal orders him to do it and then orders Stubbs and Cotton to meet him in his office. The duo arrive at his office and are told by the marshal that they are to prepare for a trip to Solos to eliminate all their enemies in one fell swoop. He tells them that Jaeger has created gas grenades for him to use to flush everyone out of the cave system. After Stubbs and Cotton leave, the marshal and Jaeger return to the lab where Jaeger tells him that the temperature on the plants has been growing steadily hotter as it is entering its summer season, the first time it has occurred since its initial colonization of the planet. Jaeger says that the increase will make it impossible for any human to live on the planet. The marshal tells him to ignore that and continue his work on deionization bombs. Jaeger then tells him about the increased rate of mutations due to the change in temperatures, and the marshal is delighted as it will mean more victims for his cull. On Solas, the Doctor and Varen enter the caves to find Kai and Joe. Varn is reluctant to go into the caves as they are filled with mutants, but the Doctor goads him by questioning his bravery. They eventually find Kai struggling to keep the mutants back as his torch dies out. They manage to drive the mutants off, but while they are doing this, Joe is chased by a mutant out of her hiding place deeper into the caves. She eventually enters a glowing chamber and passes out as a spectral figure appears in the lights. The figure is actually a man in a hazmat suit who picks her up and then takes her away. Back at the mutant nest, the doctor introduces himself to Kai and stops the fight from breaking out between the two Salonians. Even though Varen admits that he was betrayed by the marshal, he refuses to ally with his old enemy and says he will lead his own warriors into battle against the overlords. The doctor then asks for Joe and Kai says that she is safe. The doctor then presents the orb to Kai and they watch as it opens to reveal a collection of slate tablets with ancient writings on them. Kai says that no one is able to read them anymore as the language has been lost. Varen says that they should leave before the mutants return, but the Doctor refuses to leave without Joe, and so Varen leaves them behind. Kai then leads the Doctor to Joe's hiding place, and en route tells the Doctor that there was someone that may have been able to read the language. He says that a human anthropologist named Sondergaard came to the planet to learn about its culture, but he mysteriously disappeared, which he says was most likely arranged by the Marshal. They arrive at the hiding spot to find Joe missing, and Kai says that they may have been chased away, and they look around for her. They find no sign of her and they eventually make their way into the chamber, which no longer glows. The doctor notices that the mutants seem to be intent on keeping them out of there, but they are kept at bay by their torches. Kai says that there is something strange about the chamber as he feels an instinctual comfort there. They continue to try and find Joe. Meanwhile, Varn exits the caves, but he is immediately chased by a patrol. He manages to evade their shots and escapes into the swamp. He returns to his village to find it devastated by the firestorms. He tells an old man, who is currently in an advanced stage of mutation, to sound the war gong, but no one arrives. Varn then notices that he himself is starting to exhibit signs of mutation. He hears a voice in his head urging him to go to the place of sleeping, but he defiantly draws his blade and says he will not die sleeping. At another cave entrance, the marshal arrives and orders his personal guards to leave him a couple of blast packs before swearing them to secrecy. He then dismisses them, but before he can set up the packs, he is forced to hide them as Stubbs and Cotton arrive, saying that they still need to find the Doctor. They say that he is needed to help Jaeger, and the Marshal gives them 15 minutes to search the caves before he sets off the gas grenades. They then carry on to the tunnels and are heard by the Doctor and Kai, who says that they should go back to the chamber. Once there, the Doctor hears Joe groaning, and they find her on the ground. Stubbs and Cotton arrive, and the Doctor tells them that Joe is injured. Unbeknownst to them, the marshal is listening to them via their helmet mics, and he orders the grenades to be set off. He then orders his men to leave whilst he sets up the blast packs to seal off the entrances, trapping everyone in the caves with the gas. The gas seeps through the tunnels, killing several of the mutants. Meanwhile, Joe tells the others about what she saw in the glowing chamber, but says she can't remember anything about the figure she saw. 
Stubbs goes to report to the marshal, despite the doctor's protests, but relents when Stubbs informs him of the incoming attack. He goes back to the tunnels but finds them full of gas. He returns to the others and tells them that they are now trapped inside the caves with the deadly gas approaching them. Episode 4 Joe points to a side tunnel and the figure in the hazmat suit appears, beckoning them to follow him. With no other choice, they follow the figure deeper into the caves where they hear echoes of the blastbacks sealing off the tunnels. They arrive at a metal doorway built into the rock and the doctor notices that it seems to be made out of lead. They follow the figure inside and they see that it is a lab of some kind. The figure then removes his helmet to introduce himself, but the doctor has already suspected that it is Sondergaard, the missing anthropologist. He says that the tons are filled with a low-yield radiation due to the years of TCM mining, but there are still concentrated pockets like the one that he rescued Joe from. He then talks about the growing number of mutants in the caves, as well as their increasingly aggressive nature. Kai Angry states that it was the overlords like Sondergaard who caused this phenomenon, but the doctor reminds him that they are on his side and asks him to give Sondergaard a chance to explain his presence in the caves. Sondergaard sympathises with Kai as he reveals that while he initially came to Solos to gain renown for his discoveries, he soon saw that it had been turned into little more than a slave colony. He says that he tried to send word back to Earth, but the marshal intercepted his message and then tried to have him killed. He fled to the caves and managed to survive with help from the mutants, but they no longer come near him. He says that he believes that the Marshall and Yeager's experiments have accelerated natural changes occurring on the planet, but he doesn't know what they are for certain. Doctor again wonders why he was sent there by the Time Lords and tells Kai to show Sondergaard the tablets. Meanwhile, up on Skybase, the recently returned Marshall orders Jaegers to begin deployment of the rockets, even though the scientists protest that it could negatively affect the population on the planet below. Sondergaard tells the others that he may be able to decipher the symbols, but it will take time. At that moment, the mountain begins to cave in on itself due to the damage caused by the blast packs in the tunnels. Sondergaard says that there is a tunnel that leads out towards Varen's village, and the doctor tells the others to go there whilst he remains behind to help Sondergaard. Joe protests, but the doctor promises to join her and the others later. After a bit of difficulty, the two scientists manage to reach a breakthrough on the tablets when the doctor realises that the tablets represent Solace's seasons, each of which lasts 500 years due to the planet's 2,000-year orbital cycle. The doctor then realises that the increasing radiation coming from the TCM on the planet has something to do with what is specified on the tablets and asks Sondergaard to take him to the chamber where he found Joe, assuring the worried man that he won't need a hazmat suit. Meanwhile, the others make their way through the tunnels, being careful to avoid wandering mutants. They encounter one of the marshal's guards and Stubbs' initial joy turns to shock when he fires at them. Kai manages to knock out the guard and they continue on towards Varen's village. They eventually reach the entrance way to Varen's village, but it is up a vertical shaft. Joe spots one of Varen's warriors observing them, but he ducks back before the others can see him. Kai warns them that they will need to proceed with caution, as Varen and his people will be openly hostile due to the recent events. Unbeknownst to them, the scout that observed them reports their presence to Varen. They lay in ambush for the quartet as they approach and disarm them. Varen tells them that he intends to launch a suicide mission against Skybase using the weapons captured from Stubbs and Cotton. Kai tries to tell him that it is futile, but Varen says that he and Joe will be their human shield. The Doctor and Sondergaard reach the chamber and make their way to the centre of it, bombarded by the radiation as they enter. Sondergaard finds the going too difficult, even with his suit, and the Doctor reluctantly leaves him behind as he approaches the centre of the chamber. Once there, he sees a strange glowing statue holding a gemstone. He removes the stone and goes back to collect Sondergaard, placing him over his shoulder so that he can carry him out of the chamber. 
Meanwhile, up in Skybase, Jaeger reports to the Marshal that it is taking time for the final checks to be done on the ionization rockets. The Marshal tells him to hurry up, but he is then distracted by an announcement saying that an unscheduled shuttle is approaching the ship, carrying an investigator from the High Council on Earth. The Marshal orders Jaeger to proceed immediately so that he will have accomplished his task before the investigator arrives. Jaeger again tries to protest, but the Marshal threatens him to get on with it. At that moment, Varn's raiding party arrives on the ship and prepares to commence their attack. Joe tries to get Varn to stop by saying that the Doctor can help with the mutation, but he doesn't believe her. Her words prove to be somewhat true, as at that moment, the Doctor reveals to Sondergaard that the new mutations are actually part of the native's normal life cycle, as every 500 years they evolve into something new. Sondergaard says that the radiation coming from the crystal must be integral to the change, but the Doctor says that there is no radioactive reading coming from it. Sondergaard says that he doesn't have the right equipment to analyse it, and they realise that they need to go to Jaeger's lab on Skybase. They make their way back through the tunnels, but Sondergaard collapses just as they approach the exit. Back on Skybase, the infiltration is noticed and the Marshal leads a squad of men to deal with the intruders. They manage to get the drop on them, and all of Varen's men are killed, whilst he and the others rush into one of the side rooms. The Marshal pursues them, firing into the room and destroying a section of the wall. Varn is sucked into the cold void of space whilst the others struggle to avoid the same fate. As this is happening, the ionization rockets are fired towards Solas. Episode 5 The Doctor helps Sondergaard up and they exit the tunnel but are forced to take cover again as the rockets begin to land around them. The bombardment suddenly stops and they continue on towards Varn's village. They arrive on the outskirts and find it deserted. The Doctor says that they might have been captured by Varn and forced to go to the Skybase, and he says that they should head for the Transmat. Meanwhile, up on Skybase, Joe and the others manage to make their way out of the room before they are sucked into space, but they are immediately captured by the Marshal and his men. He orders the firing squad to be prepared to kill Stubbs and Cotton for treason, Kai for terrorism, and Joe for being an accessory, despite Kai's insistence that she is innocent. Kai then says that so long as his people remain alive, they will fight for their freedom, but the Marshal says that there will be no one left soon. The firing squad prepared to shoot them, but they are stopped by Jaeger, who barges into the room and says that the bombardment failed. The firing squad are dismissed, and Jaeger reveals that the rockets detonated on the surface instead of the atmosphere as intended, and now the entire surface is contaminated, making it completely uninhabitable. The marshal tells Jaeger to stop talking, but he ignores him and says that the marshal will now not be able to hide this information from the investigator, and the prisoners tell him that someone on the ship is bound to reveal everything that has taken place. The Marshal indicates that he intends to stop the investigator from arriving, but Stubbs points out the unreliability of the rockets and the fact that the Doctor and Joe arrived without any advance warning. Joe then bluffs the Marshal, saying that they were sent in advance of the investigator, and Kai says that the Doctor is still alive and currently held, helping Sondergaard. Down on Solas, Sondergaard is starting to feel the effects caused by the bombardment, and despite the Doctor's protest, he insists to be left behind so the Doctor can get to Skybase. He tells the Doctor he will make his way back to the caves, and the Doctor reluctantly presses on without him, unaware that they have been spotted by one of the Marshal's men. He reports this to the Marshal, who tells Joe that he intends to use her as a bargaining chip to force the Doctor to help him and Jaeger perfect the particle reversal technique so they can fix as much of the damage as possible before the investigator arrives. He then heads out to supervise the search for the Doctor. The Doctor, realising that he is being tracked, makes his way through the swamps to avoid detection. However, he encounters one guard who he easily dispatches, but the others are alerted to his presence and they follow him to the transmat. He manages to get back to Skybase and he finds the prisoners in the Marshal's office, but before he can free them, he is captured by the recently returned Marshal and a pair of guards. 
He offers to let everyone go so long as he helps Jaeger, and the doctor reluctantly agrees. Before he goes to the lab, the marshal informs him of the arrival of the inspector and tells him to back up his story that the martial law and his new reforms for the planet are necessary. The doctor goes to the lab and Jaeger tells him that everything on the planet has been affected by the bombardment but insists that it wasn't his fault. The doctor mockingly agrees that he was just following orders and starts to get to work. He says he needs to use the guidance system from the transmat to be able to focus the particle reversal beam as it could get out of control and affect the ship instead. Jaeger says he will need to get the marshal's permission and the doctor tells him to get it quickly. In the marshal's office, Joe manages to get out of her restraints and tricks the guard into thinking she is sick before managing to disarm him. She takes his keys to release the others and takes the doctor's confiscated sonic screwdriver. Cotton then calls True to the inspector's ship, while Stubbs holds off the rest of the marshal's guards as they attempt to get into the room. Joe reveals everything that has been going on and she gets a confirmation that her message had been received just before Stubbs is killed. A distraught Cotton leads them out of the office through another door as Kai covers the rear. They make their way to the transmat, but just as they are about to activate it, the Doctor diverts the power for his work and they are recaptured. Kai and Cotton are taken to the radiation chamber and the Marshal takes Joe with him. In the lab, the Doctor is putting the finishing touches on his device and it reveals his and Sondergaard's discovery. At that moment, a weakened Sondergaard enters the caves and is nearly killed by one of the Marshal's men, but he is saved by a group of mutants. He manages to communicate with them, thanking them for saving his life and explaining how the Marshal's experiments have corrupted their natural evolutionary process. He says that if they help him find the Doctor, they can fix the process. In the lab, the Doctor activates his device and after a few moments, Jaeger reports that it was a success and that the effects of the environment have been successfully reversed, but the Marshal enters and orders him to continue the process until the planet is only capable of sustaining human life. The Doctor refuses, but the Marshal shows him that he is Joe. Suddenly, an announcement comes through that the investigator has arrived, but the Marshal orders Joe to be sent to the radiation chamber and orders the Doctor to meet the investigator with him. In the radiation chamber, Joe reveals what is going on and says that they are all now being used as bargaining chips to ensure the Doctor's cooperation. Cotton then realises that the investigator's ship will need to be refueled and the radiation chamber that they are in will soon be flooded with lethal amounts of thesium radiation as a result. Episode 6 Cotton says their only chance of escape is to crawl through the fuel hose from the investigator's ship before the refueling process begins. The docking station for the hose opens and Joe goes first as Cotton carries Kai with him as he has grown weak from the radiation. Meanwhile, the investigator and his entourage arrives and reveals that he has no idea who the doctor is. Before he can explain, the investigator addresses the accusations made against the marshal who tries to justify his actions by blaming it all on the natives. The investigator is sceptical of his claims, and the doctor tries to speak on behalf of the natives, but in the end is forced to agree with the marshal's actions in order to keep Joe and the others safe. The investigator and his entourage begin to deliberate as Jaeger enters the room, and he goes to inform the marshal of the prisoner's escape. The marshal says that it will work to their advantage, as they will most likely be completely destroyed by the radiation. Jaeger is then called to give evidence, and he denies having carried out the atmospheric experiments. The investigator then says, without evidence to the contrary, he must exonerate the marshal. Suddenly, Joe and the others rush into the room, and the doctor, now no longer hampered by the marshal's machinations, reveals the truth as to what has been going on. Meanwhile, on Solace, Sundergaard leads a group of mutants to the transmat station, but they are reluctant to follow him. The doctor accuses the marshal of genocide, and as a result of his goading, the marshal reveals his xenophobic nature. 
The investigator asks for evidence to back up the doctor's claims, but he reveals that the tablets and Sondergaard are still on the solace, but he insists that the mutations are part of a natural life cycle. Just then, one of the investigator's guards brings in Sondergaard. Sondergaard begins to speak, but the marshal tries to use his comments about the evolutionary process being contaminated as proof that the mutants need to be eradicated. Sondergaard insists that the marshal and Jaeger are to blame for the contamination. Jaeger tries to deny this, but suddenly one of the mutants enters the room and the marshal calls for it to be killed. Sondergaard tries to intervene, but the marshal takes a gun from one of the investigator's men and kills the mutant as it attempts to flee. The marshal uses this to convince the investigator that the mutants are evil and the investigator agrees to release the marshal's men as well as give him control of his own guard. The marshal returns to his office and Jaeger says that the doctor, Joe and Sondergaard fled. The marshal orders them to be found and has Kai and Cotton sent back to the radiation chamber, not caring that they will most likely die as a result of the radiation buildup caused by the refueling. The doctor and the others wait their mate to Jaeger's lab, where Joe locks the door as the doctor and Sondergaard begin to analyse the gemstone that they took from the caves in Salas. The analysis reveals that the crystal acts as a sort of biocatalytic agent, and the doctor says it needs to be brought to Kai immediately. Sondergaard says that they need a source of thesium radiation to kickstart the metamorphosis, and Joe says the radiation chamber holding Kai and Cotton is filled with it. The doctor tells them to get to the radiation chamber, but before they can leave, the marshal and his men break into the lab. He orders Joe and Sondergaard to be imprisoned with Kai and Cotton, and then demands that the doctor make the atmosphere habitable for humans only. He says he should hurry as the radiation level in the chamber is at near lethal levels. Joe and Sondergaard are pushed into the chamber and witness Kai having a fit. Sondergaard puts the gemstone in Kai's hands and they all watch as he begins to rapidly mutate. He then seems to absorb all the radiation in the room and finally transforms into a glowing spectral figure. Kai telepathically communicates with them and thanks Sondergaard for helping save his people. He then vanishes from sight but opens the hatchway for them to escape before floating down the corridors of the ship. Back in the lab, the investigator enters and furiously asks why his men have been disarmed and detained. The now insane marshal reveals that they are to be the first colonists on Solos once the atmosphere has been made habitable. He says that he intends to report them missing, and when more ships come to investigate, he will trap them on the planet as well, which will become the home world of the new Earth Empire. While they are arguing, the doctor switches out some of the cabling on the particle reversal device, which Jaeger, who has been assigned to watch him, fails to notice. The doctor says the machine is ready to be used, and the marshal, not fully trusting the doctor, tells Jaeger to activate it. The machine blows up, and the marshal goes to shoot the doctor for sabotaging his dreams. Suddenly, Kai appears and takes revenge for his people by completely disintegrating the marshal. He thanks the doctor and then fades from sight. Later, the doctor informs Joe and the investigator that Sondergaard has agreed to stay on Solas to help the remaining mutants through the evolutionary process the correct way. Cotton says he will stay on to help as well, and the investigator makes him acting commander of Skybase. He then tells the Doctor and Joe that they will accompany him back to Earth and give him a full debrief along the way. The Doctor asks to be excused so that he can make sure that Joe is okay, and he leads his confused companion back to the TARDIS. He finds the door locked, and Joe hands him back his sonic screwdriver so that he can open it. An alert goes out about the door being opened as the TARDIS dematerializes. End of the story. Now that the story is out of the way, as always, we shall go over to the trivia spot. What have you got for us this week? Cool. So for the mutants, we have an air date of the 8th of April to the 13th of May, 1972. Hmm. Writers for the story are Bob Baker and Dave Martin. 
This is the second of eight stories that they wrote together. We previously discussed their work in The Claws of Axos, and we'll see their work again together in The Three Doctors, The Santaran Experiment, The Hand of Fear, The Invisible Enemy, Underworld, and The Armageddon Factor. And we'll see another one from Bob by himself in Nightmare of Eden. Bob Baker felt that this was actually the best story that he and Dave Martin wrote together. So we'll Mm. see if our thoughts line up with that. Sadly, Bob passed away at the beginning of this month on November 3rd, 2021. Yes, and uh, we mentioned that on our Twitter feed about his passing and we thanked him for his contributions to this wonderful show that we love. Yeah, and we're going to, as we go through his sort of legacy with the show, as we go through his episodes, he's been part of some very important advancements in Doom huge like the the three doctors the santaran experiment like actually i think the next he created four, <laughs> yeah like the next the next four are huge things for um the lore of the show yeah totally agree the director for the story is christopher barry this is the seventh story that christopher directed we previously discussed his work in the daleks the rescue the romans the savages the power of the daleks and most recently in the demons we did speak in The Demons about his poor working relationship with John Pertwee and how they didn't really get on very well. Um, this story wasn't much better and this is the last that Barry directed during John's run. Which is such a shame because like, I love Christopher Barry's work on the show. Mm. I think Christopher Barry is very good and I think it's unfortunate that he and John didn't get on. Yeah. We do still get three more stories from Christopher, though. We'll see from him again in Robot, The Brain of Morbius, and The Creature from the Pit. So, this story had the working titles of Independence and The Emergence, which, in my mind, kind of highlights the two different stories being told here. We've got a sort of an yeah. independent revolutionary type story mm. and a divergent mutant or emergent mutant story. Hmm. The story was originally very explicitly based around apartheid um, in South Africa, the idea of segregation. By the time of recording, the focus had been shifted away from the political allegory into the more science fictional elements. So we do see mention of segregation, but not as much as was originally in the story. There was also apparently originally a subplot about cloning that was going to be in the latter half, but that was removed. (laughs) Because it was felt that it was awkwardly complex. Um, I, I think we've enough going on without adding a, essentially a third layer to the story. We really do. Um, so the term mutt to describe the mutating Salonians. Originally, the term was munt, M-U-N-T, which is a contradict- contraction rather of mutant native which was actually a derogatory term that white settlers used to describe South African indigenous population. It was changed, not because Munt was a real derogatory term, but because the BBC were afraid that people would confuse it with another term that's a bit vulgar. And look, we give ourselves an explicit rating for this podcast because it gives Paddy and I, mainly me, the freedom to swear. Yeah. I don't personally have an issue with the word munt sounds like, but I know a lot of people do, so I won't say it. But you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Episode six of this story is actually the first to have an on-screen copyright date. 
technically none of the others had an on-screen copyright on them. Yeah. Hmm. It's also the last story to feature incidental music by Tristram Carey. This is the last one that Tristram worked on. Originally, the Skybase power supply was sabotaged by the Doctor rather than malfunctioning as a result of a lightning strike. It was meant to be like the Doctor did stuff to sabotage everything. Also, originally for Kai's transformation, the Doctor to turn the crystal into a liquid and inject it into Kai. The production team wanted to have Kai turn into a globe shape. <laughs> but what we actually got on screen is the way it was actually scripted. That was the way it's meant to be. Right. Um, we mentioned in terms of the Autons that Katie Manning hurt her ankle. That like she was running and she mm. fell. Yeah, she hurt it again. <laughs> While they were filming at Western Quarry, uh, she re-injured her ankle. Well, to be fair, like for the boots that she was wearing, it's not the best terrain, like to be running no. across. No, they were shooting in Crystalhurst, and this was at the onset of industrial action across Britain, which meant that there was sporadic power outages. <laughs> So, Christopher Barry, the team was actually caught out in one of these blackouts and they had to navigate back to the caves where they were filming in pitch darkness. Oh, Jesus. Because imagine being stuck in the caves in the dark. Like, no. That's... That, no. Peter Capaldi is someone who will go on to play the role of the Doctor many, many years from now in Time Traveling Team Reviewing Time. Mm-hmm. But he was actually sent a package of production materials from the story after writing with to Barry Letts, including two used scripts, four plans, and set designs. And apparently it was Barry's kindness that was a trigger for his ambition to work in TV. Which is very sweet. Yeah, because like one thing like when we get into the um, the revival era of the show, like especially uh, especially Capaldi and Tennant as well, they are massive fans of the show. They yeah, and I think fans. that story about Peter Capaldi is much nicer yeah. than the one that they told on Graham Norton. Yeah. Where he wanted to be the Peter Capaldi wanted to be the head of the Doctor Who fan club. And he was basically writing to the BBC and they were like, Oh, we already have a fan club, we already have a there was like an internal memo about him basically saying, He's fucking writing to us again. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot nicer story. <laughs> Um, and oh. here we have another story where our companion is the only female character. Mm-hmm. No other women on this shoot. Nope. So let's go into our cast. Okay. So as Kai, we have Garrick Hagon. Hagon. H-A-G-O-N. I was going to call him Garrick. He also did the voice of the Skybase public address system. So when I was like, yo... An error has been detected. Blah, blah, blah. That was that was Garrick as oh. well. Uh, this is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Garrick. We'll see him again in a town called Mercy. So it's a very long time from now. Very long time. His non-Who credits include Champions, Antony and Cleopatra, Moonbase 3, The Spy Who Loved Me, Julius Caesar, Henry V, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Red 2. And he was also in Star Wars. Depending on which version of Star Wars you have seen. He was Biggs. Well, he, like, he he's in one version, he's in it longer, but he's yeah. still in it. Well, yeah, but as in, you'd know more about him, depending on which yeah. version you've seen. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he was Biggs, which I did not realise. It's, amaz- it's amazing what a moustache can do for you. Yeah, and we will get on to Star Wars again in a little bit. Yep. 
So Cotton is played by Rick James. Uh, Colin Baker was actually considered for this role. And originally the character was meant to be Cockney. (laughs) 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 Ultimately it went to Rick James. He he kept his normal speech patterns. Uh, He didn't go for a Cockney accent. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. And his non-Who credits are Blake Seven, Dixon of Doc Green and Play for Today. Rick passed away in 2018. Stubbs, or Stubbsy, is played by Christopher Cole. This is the second and final Doctor Who acting credit for Christopher. We previously saw him as Phipps in The Seed of Death. Also known as Space MacGyver. Yep. (laughs) Sondergaard, most amazing name, Yep. is played by John Hollis. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for John. He assumed an Australian accent to read the Hyperion pilot's dialogue. And he also did the radio voice for the Hyperion. So he was also, at, he was Sondergaard. He was also the voices that we were hearing from the Hyperion ship. That was him as yeah, well. Which is the investigator ship. Because I just didn't call it the Hyperion. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His non-who credits include Flash Gordon, Superman, Superman 2, A for Andromeda, The Andromeda Breakthrough, The Avengers. And he was in Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. He was Lobot. Yes, he was. The guy who never gets named on screen. Nope. And now I think people only know his name because of his action figure. Yep. He's like prune face. <laughs> prune face. <laughs> when the face is a prune, action goes boom. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know why. Like, I love I love Lobot. Like, I love, I, I, again, it's just from the, um, the action figure more so. But I was like, he's cool. Yeah. He's like a reverse Geordie. I was just thinking he's like a yeah, reverse story because the band goes around the back of his head. Yeah. Uh, John passed away in 2005. As Varen, we have James Meller. This is the second and final Doctor Who acting credit for James. He previously played Sean Flanagan in The Wheel in Space. <laughs> James's non-Who credits include The Six, Wife of he- the Six Wives of Henry VIII, Zed Cars, The Regiment, Sergeant Musgrave's Dance, and Magnolia Street. James passed away in 1976. I, I was going to say something really mean. I was like, ah, yes, the wheel in space. <laughs> the poor man's moon base. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Professor Jaeger is played by George Pravda. This is the second of three Doctor Who acting credits for George. We previously saw him in The Enemy of the World, where he was Alexander Denish. Mm. And we'll see him again in The Deadly Assassin. His non-who credits include Thunderball, The Prisoner, Doom March, again, Moonbase 3, Ike, and I, Claudius. George passed away in 1985. Lastly, as the Marshal, we have Paul Whitson-Jones. This is the second and final Doctor Who appearance for Paul. We previously saw him in The Smugglers as Squire Edwards. Yeah, a bit of a character change this time around. Eh, A bit, but not really. Yeah. (laughs) We'll get to that, I'm sure, when we talk about the Marshal. Yeah. So, and just for anyone that's remembering from last week, uh, John Hollis, uh, who I said is the bald guy that represents the Professor Xavier character when Trish asked last week, is, is there a guy in a wheelchair? I was like, no, there's a bald guy, though. No. Okay. Also, I'll, I'll allow it. I'll okay, allow it. I have a question I can see for you. him as an Xavier type. I have a question for you, right? Yep. In the first episode, when, you know, they're all there for the delegation, is he there wearing a wig as one of Kai's buddies? 
because there's someone there that's dressed exactly like him with long black hair, which is what most Salonians have. I'm I pretty don't sure know. that's. I didn't. I don't recognize him from that, and it, I didn't see it mentioned anywhere. Yeah, because that that was the thing. I was like, did you just not? Because they were up, maybe they were strapped for bodies, and they just didn't <laughs> hope no one would notice. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. I didn't. I didn't. He didn't stand out to me, but I wasn't paying yeah. that much attention. I suppose. Cool. So yes, we are now on to part two of the podcast. Well, okay, part three of the podcast. You always is, say part two. I don't get be, why. Be, because it's like the non-scripted part. Like it's the first of the non-scripted parts, so it's like it feels like part two. Okay, go on. Act two, Brute. Um, you know, part three of the podcast. Yeah, that's right. I've been watching Police Squad lately. The character discussion. Yeah. Where we discuss the the doctor. Uh, the companions, the prominent characters, so those that aren't are the neutral alignment, more or less, and then the outright villains. So this week we have the Doctor, we have Joe and Sondergaard as the companions, we have Kai, uh, Cotton and Stubbs, who we've kind of lumped together as the prominent characters, and then we have the Marshal, Jaeger, and Varen as the villains. Mm-hmm. So, thoughts on the Doctor... Doctor. Thoughts on the I the thoughts on the doctor, please and thank you. I think it's a good showing here. Um I don't think there's anything really outstanding for me. Um an overall good performance, good reflection of the doctor, of who the doctor is. I don't think that adds anything new to the character. Um there's one slight negative, it's kind of a bit of a jokey negative, but like at the beginning, when he's saying he doesn't need Joe to join him because it could be dangerous, <laughs> it's like, dude, she has saved your ass how yeah. many times? Uh, I was like, what a fucker, she saved you like twice last week. <laughs> yeah. Actually, on the subject of last week, right? Yep. Yeah. Two, was <laughs> two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. I was initially thinking, was this mission, um, was this mission given to him by the Time Lords to rectify the mistake he made in the Sea Devils? But then I realized, wait, they're arrogant pricks. They wouldn't fucking care about that. Yeah, and that's something that we'll probably get to our in our overall, where yeah. the setup for this story is weird. Yes. He's being a delivery boy mm-hmm. for a species that can make this delivery message appear wherever the fuck they want. Yeah. It, it's, it's a very douchey thing as well because like, it'll only open for the person it's intended for but we're not going to tell you who that person is you have yeah, to guess like, okay. that, that's an overall conversation yeah. piece but yeah. yeah that was fucking weird um, but for me in this, he's good you know he does sciencey stuff he stands up for people he you know he impersonates uh, you know um, uh, inspectors from earth again um, <laughs> you know uh, all good, but nothing new, and nothing really jumped out at me as a oh my god, that was a great moment. Like there was, it was nice to see that passion for the preservation of life again. Yeah, yeah, because like, uh, again, especially after the sour taste left in our mouths uh, in story two weeks ago. Yeah, uh, but like it was great, like because like you know when he got really fired up, like once the once he wasn't 
held back by Joe and the others being in danger anymore. Like he was able to say, like, this is like the worst travesty against a species I've ever seen. It's little more than genocide. Like it was great seeing him get fired up. My problem is I don't think he got fired up enough. No, he didn't. But at least there was something. Yeah. Like so I didn't have this down as a note for the Doctor, because it's kind of a note for the story as a whole, but it's something that I would have expected from the Doctor. They kind of removed a lot of the segregation discussion from the episode. But it they do hang. Every time they use those transporter things, you see that overlords go one way and Salonians go another way. Yeah. He mentioned that segregation is the thing. Mm-hmm. Where was the doctor heartfelt speech about the immorality of segregation. And I, that's, I, I think that is more so for the overall component because yeah. for a story that lent heavily into it. I don't, it lent no, into it. I don't say it lent heavily into oh, it, which sorry. is a problem. No, no, sorry. When I say lent heavily, I'm just going off the initial, what the initial script well, yeah, from the, the initial story spot. Speak. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a more of a comment for the overall, the overall but it's yeah. something that I felt was lacking in the Doctor, but that's not necessarily the fault of the portrayal of the Doctor, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now we go on to uh, Princess Josephine of Tardis. Sorry, <laughs> wrong story. <laughs> uh, we go on to Joe. And for me, kind of like the Doctor, there's not a whole lot of anything new here. Nothing that we haven't seen before. No, what I found interesting about Joe in this one is that it's an interesting mixture where she is both the damsel in distress, mm. but we also see her being strong, standing up for what's right, and leveraging what I call her u- her unit agent skills. Mm. So we see her doing the lock picking stuff. Mm. We see her like you know she stands with um, Kai and Cotton and Stubbs. You know, like she's she's in there with them. Do you know? Yeah. But we do also see her being treated as the damsel in distress. You know, she's used as the hostage to get the doctor to do what she wants. Mm. Um, Kai does threaten to leave her behind at one point, though he doesn't later on. But like he goes and hides her in a corner while he fights off the mutts and stuff. It's this weird combination of... I think it's done better than we've seen her done in some other stories. Yeah. Well, like I th- For me now, I think the only real damsel in distress type moment was... When she's running away from the mutant that finds her in her hiding hole. Well, yeah, but there's the whole her being captured by Kai in the first place. Them constantly saying, we'll get the doctor to do what we want because we'll use his friend as leverage. Like, her her point in the story is to be used as leverage for the doctor, which I'm not a big fan of. But they do also show her, like, doing her lockpicking stuff and, you know, getting stuck in. Yeah. Which I is see- good. I think for me, like when I, for me, I think when it comes to damsel and distressing, it's like, you know, that whole, you know, help, help, please save me, save me. Whereas Joe. No, but I think, I think they're, they're putting her in that uh, role rather than her putting herself in that role. That makes a difference. But I, uh, no, no, I, yeah, that makes sense. But I think it's just mitigated by the fact that wherever she gets put into it, it's almost like, it's almost a sort of a, a for fuck's sake type thing where Mm. she has to inevitably get herself and other people out of it again. Yeah. Um, but that's why I think this was an interesting one for Joe's because they did keep trying to put her into that bucket. Yeah. And then they were also showing her, which which is good. But again, we've seen it before. Like Joe, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. in the Sea Devils was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe in um, Peladon 
was fucking great. fantastic. Do you know? So I think this one is good, but it doesn't really stack up. I don't think with those other ones. No, it it, it doesn't because see which with the last two it's been new challenges hmm. here because the, the, there there is no new challenge something that she hasn't been in before as such yeah like i mean it, similar to the doctor and again I'll, I'll discuss this more in the overall but there was a lot of opportunity here for joe to be the voice of conscience yeah joe to be the voice of conscience against the segregation Joe to be the voice of conscience against the treatment of the mutants and Joe to be the voice of conscience against the overlords in general and the idea of taking over someone else's land and reducing it to a slag heap. And I think there could have been great discussion there with Joe as the center point of that. That again, they didn't do. Like she's the one that contacted, that got the message out to the ship. So I think it would have been really good rather than the, like, okay, the doctor saying his stuff, mm. but if the investigator had said like, oh, well, we had her, like, you know, she's the one that contacted us and then give Joe the chance to kind of talk about what she has seen. Yeah. So, yeah, it would have been, because like, one thing that we have seen is that Joe's very good at telling the story. Yeah. And because like, it was done masterfully in Peladon. Mm. So I like seeing. I would like to see a bit more of that. Yeah, we we've also seen Joe be the advocate before. Yeah, not as much as I would want. They always they always pull back just that last second. Yeah, but we've seen her do it, and I think she would have been very well positioned in this story to be that advocate. You know, even if it's not like advocating against the marshal or advocating against the crew of the Hyperion, um, but even just you know having that conversation with the doctor of you mean we're doing what now Mm. humanity has gotten to the point where we segregate people based on we're still doing that yeah three thousand years later joe i i think there would have been a great opportunity there for that discussion to happen and to be kicked off by joe if the doctor wasn't going to comment on it himself um but again they didn't go down that route well See, this is the kind of thing now that you t- it's raised by the questions of like what we don't know what types of conversations are happening between the characters between between stories, because mm. Joe would have seen the the class divide in humanity from colony and space. You know, with the whole sense of corporations yeah. seem to have preference over colonists and all this kind of stuff now this is the first time i think where she's heard the terminology that earth has an em- a stellar empire mm. and um, identify themselves as overlords yeah so or like you know at least don't dissuade or push off the notion that they're overlords because like someone says that overlords is a term given to them by the salonians yeah and yet they, it's written on all their yeah. signs yeah so yeah they don't <laughs> they, they they don't disavow the, the claim no, at all. They, they lean quite heavily into it yeah so <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think um, it would it would have been interesting to have Joel be a bit more of a focal point in this. Hmm. Then we've got Thunderguard, whose name I just love. I know it's great, Thunderguard. <laughs> I like uh, him. Yeah, he seems as nice. I, as I say, good old reliable Lobot. <laughs> he seems nice. He's a nice guy. He's very considerate. I like lo- I, I love his act because I, I this is the thing right. This is. I think this is the third thing that I've seen him in. 
Hmm. And it's the first time I've ever heard him speak. Because <laughs> he is a silent part in Dirty Dozen. He is a silent part in Empire Strikes Back. So I'm like, that's a very strong Scandinavian accent. If, <laughs> if that is your real accent, but I like it. Um, I, what I really like about him, right, is that he didn't become like this paranoid, demented hermit, because like he says like that the marshal had had tried to have him killed, mm. so like, you know he's not like who are you? Did the marshal send you all this type of shit? He's he's not, like he works in the shadows to try and reverse the corruption of the planet, and again it's like he never stops trying to help so like he never even though the mutants were like acting hyper aggressive he never stopped believing that he could help them yeah like, i mean the thing about sondergaard that i like is that he is a very he's a very star trek character yeah <laughs> he's a character that belongs in star trek <laughs> you know he would fit quite well um in in that universe um, he's a very considerate person, like you said. You know, he could have very easily, you know, tried to, you know, side with Jaren, for example. And, Baron. What? Baron. Baron. Sorry, yeah. side with Baron, um, and get the sort of military side of the Salonians on his side, sort of lead a- attack against the Marshal. But he didn't. He's a scientist, and and that's what he did. The one call out I'd have about him is that. Clearly, he cares a lot about these people and he wants to make sure that, you know, he does what he can to reverse the negative aspects of, of Earth humans coming to this planet. But none of them know he's there. Hmm. They've heard of him before. Yeah. Because Kai mentions him by name. But he's living in these caves. He's helping the people who clearly completed the mutation to the level that they're at the sort of Hmm. bug like form but unless you go to that glowy cave you do not know he is there yeah and I'm like why haven't you been communicating with Kai for example Hmm. who also cares a great deal about those undergoing the mutation I was like, you could have worked together. But see, this this is the weird thing, right? Is that Kai's first dialogue about Sondergaard is that like, oh, he was a nice man that tried to help. Mm. And then when he actually meets him, he's like, you know, it's pricks like him that fucking caused all this. And it's like, hey, you were seeing his praises five minutes ago. No, so, but he, like, that's what I'm going to say. Like, maybe Kai wouldn't have had that reaction if, if Sondergaard yeah. had made himself known ages ago mm. <laughs> and had worked with them as opposed to hiding away in a cave doing from Kai's perspective God knows fucking what see this is the, the other thing right is that we're not told how far in advance like how long ago he went into seclusion all we're just told is that you know it was before and we see at the start that Varen and his crew are, or his people are very closely aligned with the overlords mm. whereas Kai's aren't but was was that divide in attitude there while Sondergaard was still up on Skybase? Because if it wasn't, then he probably wouldn't know who to trust. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. I just think but, they could have done more with sort of 
even like making Sundergaard this sort of almost mythological figure of you know we've heard stories that if you're undergoing the change that Sundergaard is still here and he'll help do you know mm. like there, there, there could have been like rumors going around that Sundergaard was still there um rumors that he himself so because like how does the man eat well see he has some sort of like his own little mini hydroponics hydroponics lab yeah so it's like is, is that all like how does he get like i don't know i think i just found it a little bit weird that he's trying to help these people but completely without their knowledge yeah that that strikes me as odd because it also means that he's not getting people early enough in the mutation. He's only dealing with people when they've gotten to the point where they go to that cave of sleeping or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, you're kind of cutting off half your data there, buddy. <laughs> like, you need the preliminary data that you have none of. Um, but that's that's a nitpick on a character that is, generally speaking, very nice and very considerate. And like I said, he's a very Star Trek character. He is. He really is. Now, before we go any further, it's, it is actually bugging me. So I'm going to check to see if he is in that delegate meeting meeting thing. Go ahead. Okay. Right. No, it is not. It is someone that looks very similar to him, but it is not John Hollis in the wig. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, but yeah, uh, prominent characters. Yeah, so with Kai and then Cotton and Stubbs. I have a question for you. So, so again, Paddy picks the characters and where they go. Um, why is Kai a prominent character and not a companion? Because... Alright, I've just put it down here. Blasted Biggs! <laughs> 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 um, so, like, at at the start... Okay, at the start of the story, I think he's a, he's a fucking idiot. Mm-hmm. Okay, I agree with you. Because if you could just shut up, you'd hear that the overlords are pulling out. Yeah. That you're going to have your freedom to exactly. shut up. <laughs> no, granted, the administrator was giving like an Obama level speech, which is like draw every syllable is almost Shatner esque, you know, like every syllable out to get across the point that now you will have your independence from us from this day forward. Period. Right now, <laughs> like I say, just get to the fucking point. But at the same time. Dude, just shut up and listen. And then, like, as I said, there is that sort of kind of flippy floppy type thing where it's like, okay, yeah, he's helping Joe, but he seems, he seems like a bit of a prick about it. And then it's like, you know, oh, Sondergaard, you know, was very good to my people. And then, as I said, oh, it's pricks like Sondergaard here that caused all this fucking problem. And I, I don't see him because of like this base level animosity and this aggro he has at times he does seem more like a hindrance than a help so that's why I place him in the power and character section okay I agree with you on some things like, yeah. like dude shut the fuck up yeah and you'll get everything you wanted just yeah wished um and it, when he made his really dick comment about I'm more important than you to my people, I am more important than you. I will leave you behind. You're like, dude. Most people think that they don't fucking say it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I said the loud part quiet, and the, or said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet. Um, 
But in fairness, he does still try and keep her safe. So for all his bluster about, mm. I'll leave you behind, blah, blah, blah. He does still try and keep her safe, you know. And I think the reason why I questioned why he's not a companion is because almost from the moment that he and Joe sit down at the fireside when he brings her the the oxy mask, mm. the two of them are working together. <laughs> They work together throughout the entire story, with the exception of he kidnapped her for mm. like five minutes. Do you know? So that's where I was questioning why he was a problem. Like, he's a dickhead. And I think when he has strong leadership skills, he has, he'd be shit at politics. Yeah. Oh, but definitely. so would, so would Varen. So that's, yeah. that's fine. Um, clearly, that's not something that's important to these people. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of looking at the characters, he is obviously very compassionate to his people. And the fact that he refers to those who've gone through the mutation as still being his people, Hmm. I think, again, is a very... um, It's it's something to be celebrated about the character, that he still sees them as his people regardless. And while he tries to scare them off with fire, he doesn't try to kill any of them. He doesn't try to hurt them. He's like, hey, it's me, it's Kai, I'm your friend. Why are you acting fucking weird? Okay, you're acting aggressively weird, you need to go away. But like, he doesn't try to hurt them. He's waving fire at them. Yeah. Which I thought was, you know, really, really good. Um, And then he went all Oma de Sala on everybody. Yeah, that, that evolution thing was weird. I don't know, it's just like, because I'm, I'm going back and like... Because I would over- put Sondergaard as the prominent character over Kai. Yeah, no, because like I was thinking back to, like, to some of our other are they allies or are they prominent character things, and I was like, I was like, I don't know what it was for Kai and me, but just for some reason, I don't know. I just I wouldn't have put him above Sondergaard in terms of companionship. Okay, I I would maybe consider Kai a companion to Joe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, maybe more so than he, than he's a companion to the doctor. Yeah, no, I'd agree. So, uh, Stubbs and Cotton. Yeah, so now we're on to Cotton and Stubbs or Stubbsy. Stubbsy, man, Stubbsy. Perhaps the best thing about the whole story is Cotton and Stubbs, <laughs> in my mind. All right. <laughs> um, I really like them because they're clearly just there to do their job. Yeah, they have a job and they do it. However, they do have some sense of morality and they will stick their necks out to do the right thing. Mm. They could very easily have just turned their back and continued on with what they were doing, but they didn't. And that's what I like to see is like, as opposed to them just being another set of, you know, stormtroopers or whatever, you know, the sort of faceless automatons of an empire for mm. stealing all the terminology. Um, they actually have a conscience, do you know? And it doesn't really take long for Stubbs to realize and accept the truth of what happened. Yeah. You know, the doctor doesn't let him kill Varen. Mm-hmm. And then clearly explain, clearly listens as Varen explains what happened. And believes him. Mm. And sides with the doctor and goes from there. And Cotton, almost of his own volition separately, you know, lied about Joe. And then, you know, 
immediately told the doctor the truth. I was like, we don't have her. She's still down there. She's still free. You know, you know, immediately siding with them. Yeah. What I find funny is how the two of them then tried to continue doing their job. <laughs> kind of going, we're fucked, aren't we? We are royally <laughs> fucked. If he figures out what we've done, we are so fucking screwed. Has he yeah. figured it out? I don't think so. <coughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> you know? um, for me, I think they're actually the best thing about the whole story. <laughs> there's there's one thing that I was get I was getting the feeling of a small bit. And from your, again, so much missed opportunity here because of the the pulling back on the allegory yeah. that it was meant to, be meant to be, is that I get the impression that they were meant to represent the different viewpoints that occupation occupation soldiers have hmm. in these sort of scenarios where you've got some that are like aren't you've got soldiers that aren't as bad as the marshal mm. but they'll still use derogatory terms to reference mm. not they won't use like i suppose There's there's like a really weird okay you you might have seen a movie with me and the lads years ago the wild geese, no, all right it's ba- it's a basically it's a mercenary movie based in South Africa and there's one person, he is South African he's a white South African, hmm. and he, like throughout his whole thing like he comes to this like you know new understanding of what, uh white South Africans and uh, native South Africans need to have in order to be able to the cooperation they need to have in order to basically survive hmm. without tearing each other's pieces but prior to the mission like he goes on about the whole thing of like you know the white pe- how white people view black people in South Africa hmm. and he said at one point he goes like I don't particularly like them I just don't like killing them and it's like well like that's a bit of a weird fucking it, it's it's an interesting character thing, which is like that. I don't like taking their lives, but I don't like associating with them type things. And I get the feeling that cotton subs were meant to represent stuff like that. And I think the because like you know the way that he says like you know come out Varen, we'll make it as easy as possible for you. And Stubbs refers to the mutants as mutts, whereas Cotton doesn't. Cotton just I don't think Cotton refers to them as anything. No, and this is something that. When you that Colin Baker was originally considered for cotton, it mm. makes this a little bit different. But in the show, Cotton and Stubbs are played by a black man and mm-hmm. a white man. Yes. In a show that was meant to have an apartheid allegory mm-hmm. and a segregation yeah. allegory. And. I think they could have done more with them in that respect. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you know? Because um, the seeds are there. And like, again, we'll discuss it more in the overall, but it fuck, I felt like they were half characters because of that. Yeah. So I think, I think what, I think Cotton is more, like Cotton's so fucking laid back um, that, you know, like when the alarm's going off, he's like, fuck it. It's fine. It's an alarm. Who the fuck cares? <laughs> you, you, you know? Whereas Stubbs is much more, okay, come on. Like, this is our job. We have to do whatever. In terms of uh, like Stubbs using mutts and you know, come on, I'll make it easy for you or whatever. I kind of get the sense of he's like, I don't think he uses the word mutt in a derogatory term in the same way that the marshal does. Yeah, Cotton uses the information given to him by his superiors mm-hmm. to do his job. 
even if he doesn't like what he's doing. When that information changes and he is given separate information that shows his superiors in a massively negative light to the point where not only is the marshal being a dickhead to the people of this planet which is somewhat accepted as a norm mm. though Ma- the marshal goes to extremes the fact that the marshal killed the ambassador guy or whatever yeah that for him is like okay He's completely fucking lost the plot. Okay, I'm not listening to him anymore. <laughs> I'm going to do my own thing. So I, I think, I think they were while underdeveloped, and I think there was missed potential there. Hmm. I do, I did find the two of them very interesting. I thought that all of their scenes were done well. I think they worked well with within the group, and I like how they both worked with Kai with no. There was no issue there. There was no you know, resigning yourself to having to work with him, you know? And, like, this is the thing, though, as well, right, is that because they felt like such half-developed characters, I did. I felt no attachment to Stubbs' death. And normally with, like, characters that are developed as the story goes on, like, when they die, you would feel something for them, you know? Mm. I've, I felt... My emotional connection to Stubbs' death is connected to Cotton's reaction, reaction to, to Stubbs' death. Yeah, because this is, again, this is the thing is that I don't know whether Cotton is meant to be a rookie or if he's meant to be there as long, like, you know, maybe not as long as Stubbs, but he's meant to be there a long enough time to be able to they're they're essentially best mates Mm. because i think after Stubbs goes cotton becomes almost like a child in the sense of it's like you he's lost his big brother figure i i wouldn't go that far with it i think that that's well that's like i suppose that's maybe the way it came across to me because but again it might just be the way that rick james played the character because he he did seem very panicky as the story went on yeah, but he's also the one who came up with the idea of how to get out of the nuclear room or whatever. So he True. still was leading. True. He was just being. I I wouldn't I wouldn't have called him childish after that. Do I? I'd say more so. Maybe it's the portrayal. It's Rick James's portrayal of the character, how he chose to go with it, because it it it's certain the way that certain lines are delivered or certain scenes are done, it just feels like that he's. He, he, or not so much childish, but he's just gone back to being a rookie as, as such. Okay, I didn't get that, but, but okay. Right. That, that, that was just my reading. Cool. And then we have the villains. So, the Marshal, Professor Jaeger, and Varen. Yep. So, we do Varen first. This is going to be my opportunity to speak about the Salonians as a whole, right? Because this is meant to be an allegory for apartheid. Mm -hmm. The Salonians are, particularly Varen, is presented as this weird mix between a sort of Norse warrior type in Mm. terms of his clothes and his weaponry. 
and a Native American. Yeah. In terms of his hair, the fact they all have the the long, long, straight black hair and stuff like that. And unfortunately, Varen is presented as the dumb native, which I hate Hmm. as a stereotype. And the fact that even though the overlords have been around for a long time, he barely speaks the language or he doesn't speak it very well. He, they give him moments of giving, like when his son dies, he does a sort of ritualistic expression. Mm. I don't know how to describe it. It's ritualistic gesture. But they don't ever explain what that gesture is. It's just like, oh, hey, what would a native culture do? They would do something yeah, random and ritualistic or whatever. And also, no offense to the actor, I don't think it was acted very well. No. And I think that, like, because Kai, while also being part of that society as a character, was played very well, I think. Yeah, no, he, he was. To be fair to Gareth Hagan, he did, he did a really good job playing that role. Yeah, whereas Varen is just a, sort of a caricature. He, he is because, like, well, first and foremost, what a way to go, being sucked out into space. Yeah. But, like, he, he's the leader of his particular sect of people, okay? Mm. And they're a warrior-based grouping. But he's clearly like not an advocate of the whole enemy of my enemy is my friend type of thing. No. Because at the start, and it's actually kind of a cool uh, mention that you made about the Native American type thing. Because it feels very, when the French, when Britain and France were going to war with each other over Native in America, the various tribes, you know, allied to one side or mm. the other. So like you had almost had this very kind of Huron French type thing, you know? And at the start, like, you know, he's a, he and his group are essentially lackeys of the, or vassals of the overlords. Like, they're mm-hmm. willingly, like, whereas Kai's crowd are the opposition. Mm-hmm. But after he gets betrayed, he doesn't want to side with Kai. No. And it's like, dude, you have, f- you have five people with you. You, you have the same objectives. Get the overlords out why the hell in the name of god can you not fucking all band together and his whole thing is like that right we'll lead a chart we'll do a suicide mission and it's like okay you have two overlord guns the re- and the rest of you are just armed with swords and your whole plan is to just charge into the fucking thing via the transmat no wonder your tribe died you are a terrible leader yeah he's a terrible leader and to be honest i actually you know I stood by him in the sense of when he was hearing that voice saying to go to the cave of sleeping or whatever. Yeah. He's like, no, I will not die sleeping. You're like, fucking kudos to you, right? Yeah. But he so identifies as the warrior that he's a fucking moron. Do you know? Yeah, don't go to the cave of sleeping because you don't want to go down sleeping. You want to fight this and you want to you do whatever. But like, he's, I think he's just this sort of native stereotype Played badly and written even worse. Yeah. Um, I is he a villain? Uh, I guess. You know, is he a nuisance? More likely. Yeah. Do you know? 
I think see I and I think I just categorized him with the villains thing is that he he reluctantly agreed to help the doctor find Kai and Joe and then after that he goes back to being an antagonistic asshole the whole time. Yeah, and they actually if they wanted to lean into using sort of Native American peoples as their mm. allegory rather than whatever you know, in terms mm. of the aesthetic, you you could have him a be efficient mm. and actually good a good warrior, and kind of go down the sort of like dog soldier type route of mm. taking the oppressor's weapons mm-hmm. and turn them against them. You know. And, they could have done it better, is yeah. my point. You know, they could have had him been a, an effective warrior first of all, uh, leading a band of effective warriors. Hmm. You know, but they didn't, and instead, it just came across as this really shitty stereotype. Yeah, it, it did. Then we've got Professor Jaeger. Hmm. Um, I don't get what the deal is with Professor Jaeger. I. I, I I don't I don't either because he seems to st- he like he'll stand up for himself to a point and then he'll back down and then when shit goes sideways it's you know the whole thing of like oh well I I have no fo- I have no part to blame in this and so like, well technically you could have not done it and carried on or like done it because you're the scientist that's the, that's the thing Mm. the marshal isn't the scientist you are the scientist so this thing lives and dies by your whims and you made such a big fucking fuss over your experiment being tampered with at the start that the minute the minute the like i suppose as the story goes on then it's like this i i I don't know how to describe him but i don't get what's in it for him like, why is he helping the marshal at all? He knows the marshal killed the administrator, or whatever the fuck his name was. Mm-hmm. He knows that the marshal wants to commit genocide, genocide on a global level. Yeah. He knows this. So why the fuck is he helping him? He's never threatened. He's never held a gunpoint. They had the marshal blusters at him. But that's about as far as it goes. Is it notoriety? Like, that's the that's the only thing I can think of because like there's almost a touch of Lestrison, you know, from Power of the Daleks. To yeah, him. but like when the Hyperion arrives, yeah, and you have the investigator, why not just come clean to the investigator? Like here is a higher power in your hierarchy, hmm. just confess. Yeah. Instead, he's like, well, if you check your readings, you'll notice that there's nothing wrong with the planet. It's fine. It's like, no, here was your out to be a good person. And for reasons completely beyond my fucking knowledge, you have decided not to do that. Yeah, and like we probably are missing that line of dialogue, which is like, think of the notoriety, Jaeger. Think of how famous you'll be. Think of rah, 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 blah, 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 yeah, blah. But no, in- instead, it's just, I'm a Unscru- scientist. Yeah, I'm an unscrupulous scientist. Yeah, Sorry. It's like, why? <laughs> like, yeah. there's no, like, all of the mad scientists we've seen before, we at least get some, like, their decisions, to, yeah. it makes sense. Do you know? His makes no sense. No. Because he's not the one in power. He's doing someone else's bidding. Whereas all of our other mad scientists have been doing their own bidding. Like like the only other motivation, the possible motivation that's there is to get one up on the doctor. Yeah, because he seemed he seemed a little bit of a bruised ego when the doctor came in. But yeah. even then he's like, But I want to use the doctor to do my work. Particle reversal or whatever the hell it was. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, no, he. I just don't get him. But I don't get it. <laughs> no. And then we have the Marshal of Salas. Dickhead racist. Yep. Com- Pretty much. Um, oh, complete xenophobe. Complete. Oh, yeah. Complete xenophobe. Like, he is someone who is used to getting his own way in a system that is clearly broken as fuck. Hmm. The inv- Okay, so he kills the administrator. The administrator. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Because he wants to stay lord of... What is... Described by the people who live there, Lord of a slag heap. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I don't get why he wants this planet so badly. There's no resources left. No. It would like, why do you want it? Yeah, you could make it into a colony, I suppose, but it wouldn't be a very prosperous colony because it doesn't have any resources left because you've already taken them all. Mm-hmm. So, what would be the fucking point <laughs> of colonizing it? But like, when the investigator arrives. Clearly, their justicism is completely fucked because the marshal is able to a just bluster his way through it, going ah 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 ah. See, see, they don't have any evidence. They don't have any evidence. See, see. I was like, mm-hmm. dude, shut the fuck up. Yeah, hell? it's like not, now you're making yourself look very fucking suspicious. Yeah, but apparently that's fine. Mm. Do you know? Because the investigator's like, well, he has a point. You don't have any evidence. <laughs> He's clearly a raging psychopath, but you don't have any evidence. <laughs> Open Fuck. your eyes, motherfucker. <laughs> but I, I, yeah. See, this is the thing as well. Like you know that okay, it's it's from the start, right? Mm. He he is he's completely xenophobic. Yeah. Right. But his big rant at the end, it just seemed to explode from. I, like with stuff like that, it's a for me, the the best way to make it effective is a gradual build and a because the guy played it the exact same way the entire six episodes. There's no real, no real signs of for me anyway. No, I could maybe I'm completely missing around, but there was no signs of gradually building hysteria to get to that outburst. Yeah, I mean, he treats the non-mutated Slonians the exact same way. As yeah. the mutated ones. Yeah. He wants to destroy them both. One he makes into a bit of a game. Mm-hmm. And the other he's just going to do it on a global scale. It's like... So you're... It's not that you have an issue with the mutations. It's, you just have an issue with everybody. Okay, yeah. so... Because, <laughs> like, yeah. like... Again, like, there's like... He reminds me of uh, Striker from X2. Mm. In, in terms of his motivation. Yeah. But also uh, Denton from Colony in Space, in the yeah. sense of like, kind of Lord of his own little private army type thing. Yeah. But the issue is, is that he's not. He, while he, I suppose, the character in essence strives to be like them. He actually ends up becoming a small bit of a caricature, and he's more like a Roman governor than these two type of guys. Yeah, because the thing is, like, once the investigator arrives and the investigator sides with him, he's then like, "Oh, like put your men under my command." And the investigator says, okay, like, dude, you, you were literally, this guy was literally just in court because people thought that he was abusing his power, but all right. Yeah, so here, take but my personal instead, But instead of playing possum for a while, mm. he immediately goes on the crazy psycho bastard train. Yeah. And locks up <laughs> those men that were sold to report him, locks them up so they can't. Mm. Fight. It's like, dude, at least 
try and pretend you're not a psycho. I can imagine like fucking uh, the two boys that were writing this were like going, ah, fuck, we've only got 10 minutes of screen time left. Bollocks, he goes insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think in terms of like villains that we've had in the past, particularly villains of this type, I, I don't think he really compares. I think we've no. seen the character done a lot better in previous stories. I think this is our poorest batch of villains. That yeah. springs to my mind anyway. I think it's because like sometimes we've had like that one redeeming villain or like that one good villain out of a bad bunch. Mm. But I think this is the first time where there's been no compelling villain at all. Yeah. No, I'd agree. I'd agree. Like, I, it, there's nothing. There's not even anything for you to. But you can hate. You can hate the marshal but like he's like a caricature so what exactly yeah. is it that you hate <laughs> yeah. do you know because and like i don't know whether it was like the science fiction element or maybe it's just the fact that they steered away so much from the initial allegory that they were going from but you see like in racial based movies where like there is that like that over the top bigoted character yeah but at the same time it's like you know that that type of person exists or that type of mentality exists here I, I think it just maybe comes down to the performance where like they just felt like words they didn't feel like an intent or an ideology it just i didn't believe him yeah. as such yeah no i i agree <laughs> So now we're on to our overall. Yeah, very interesting character discussion, I thought, because it's it's rare that we get different reads on, like, supporting characters. Mm. Usually, like, it's maybe, like, the, um, an aspect of a companion or an aspect of a villain. But, yeah, for our differences in Kai and Cotton and stuff, I thought that was kind of an interesting discussion, all right, for yeah. two different reads. Yeah, I was surprised, because, again, you messaged me earlier going, do you think this would be an interesting conversation? Yeah. Um, which I just find the funniest, <laughs> the funniest yeah. way of you trying trying to get my score ahead of my score. <laughs> <laughs> and I said I didn't know if it would be interesting, mainly because this story was so fucking boring. Yeah, like like best thing I was I I was kind of being sarcastic when I sent that because I agree this is this is a very boring story. Yeah, it, it really is. Like and like outside of our outside the not like the standard performances of john and katie and their standard is very good mm. yeah like, this isn't like a space pirates thing where everyone just fucking phoned it in yeah this is like their normal caliber performances and john hollis's sundergaard i really enjoyed i thought he mm. was great same with garrick hogan i didn't like the character but i liked his performance yeah. i saw it was so hard to keep invested in this story at one point i did start wrapping christmas presents i'm not gonna lie <laughs> <laughs> Namely, your Christmas present. Woohoo! <laughs> but I was it was, I was, it was for a good going, cause. I was like, cool. Like, there was nothing appealing to keep. Like, I was still watching it, but I was also wrapping gifts at the same time. Yeah. Um, which, when you're doing a podcast, we're meant to be discussing the story. Is like, oh, I, I really try not to. No. Do double duty. It, it, I should be paying attention. I was so bored when episode five ended, and I was like, how is it not over? I was like, oh, that was only episode five. <laughs> I thought it was episode six. <laughs> um, 
the thing for me though is like when I was look because I looked at the background of this story before I watched it, mm. right? So I was away last weekend, and on the train, I started doing up the trivia notes. Mm. Usually I leave the trivia till later, but whatever. So I was doing it last weekend on the train, and so what I saw that was going about apartheid and segregation. I was like, oh, this is going to be very interesting. It's going to be a very compelling story. Mm. The segregation part was mentioned once. Once, yeah. There were signs there the whole time and they hung on that sign every time someone went through the transmat they hung on that sign overlords this way salonians that way we did not get a doctor speech on how that form of segregation was wrong which i would have completely expected i would have expected there to be more of an emphasis on the segregation part and how that was wrong both the segregation between the overlords and the Salonians, but also the delineation between your standard Salonian and the mutated Salonians. This was a prime story for a doctor speech. Yeah. And we didn't fucking get one. And like, this is the thing now, like that we've talked that Doctor Who has never really hidden the fact that they've had allegories for certain things like we went back to the massacre and it was it was kind of ballsy of them to air that during a time when the troubles were just about to start in northern ireland with this catholic protestant divide yeah and like obviously and we talked about the catholics and protestants have had fucking problems for centuries yeah but to ever since that, there were protestants yeah ever, ever since ever since there were protestants like but like well, ever since there was fucking religion, you could say, like, yeah. in some regards, not just blaming it on Protestants. Um, but, I meant the Catholic Protestants. Yeah, the yeah, Catholic Protestants, yeah. But like, it's like to air that, like, f- during a time, like, just when shit is about to start kicking off there, you know? And it's been it's been bubbling, bubbling there. And then we talked about the Curse of Peladon, which is meant to be, like, a metaphor for the the common market and Britain's yeah. reluctance to go into it. Like, they're not fucking shying away from stuff. So... I'm just surprised that they didn't really put more emphasis on that metaphor with the segregation, which was happening. There's stuff like that happening in America. There was stuff like that happening in. Now, I think the civil rights had kind of gotten rid of a lot of the Jim Crow laws. No, that's my base on the. Not well, so we're great still looking at early it. 70s here. So while yeah, that's, you may yeah, have had legal, rep- like, legal recourse to say that mm-hmm. the civil rights movement had gotten to a certain point. You still had day to day life being yeah, very, very different. Day to day life. So like, this is this is relevant. Yeah, so, and like I mean, this is meant to represent apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. You know, where I mean, um or oh, what's his name? Mandela? South African Nelson talk Mandela? show host in oh, no. oh, Trevor Noah Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah like he sometimes in his comedy and when he's talking, he goes into great detail about how his existence was illegal. His dad mm. could not come over to their house. Mm-hmm. And when he was walking down the street with his mother, if a police officer was coming towards him, she dropped his hand and pretended she didn't know him. Yeah. Because he was mixed. Mm-hmm. White and black. That was still going on. Yeah. You know, and the ramifications of that are still seen in South Africa today. Yeah. You know, there's still stories coming out of South Africa of um, people wanting white South Africans to give back, to give quote unquote back property. 
mm-hmm. that shouldn't have been theirs or whatever way you want to look at it like that is still a thing mm-hmm. um you know i went to south africa for work and we have to make sure that when we're training you have to categorize what race somebody is mm-hmm. are they white colored or mixed because they each have to get that you have to be able to show that everyone was given equal opportunity that's still a thing today this is in 1970s i'm like why didn't you lean more into it it's like and like we've talked before about like how science fiction is great at representing the, these topics mm. and like again that movie the wild geese uh that i mentioned I, i'd recommend anyone to watch it because yeah okay you could say that's a standard action film but it raises a lot of great points like again the south african character talks about um so the mission is that they have to go and save a south african diplomat that is trying to or a, a dip uh, an african diplomat that is trying to basically reform his country Mm-hmm. And he's been cooed, he, he's been suffered from, he's been ousted by a military coup, so they're going to rescue him. There's lots of politics involved in it. And they get into a debate and about the whole thing of like, you know, white settlers in South Africa. And your man said, the South African, the, the white character says, like, we have built your countries and now you're kicking us out of all of them. You're screaming about outside oppression while you're killing each other in big, you know, great big mm-hmm. bleeding batches. And he goes, like, we're just as South Af- we're just as African as you are. Like, we're we fought like we we want to stay in this country i think that those concepts they were primed to be discussed here because we had the conflicts between varon's tribes or groupings and kai's groupings and we had their both reactions to the overlords and again the varying degrees of reactions to of the overlords to the salonians so much there to work with and they pulled away from it for God knows whatever reason. Yeah, and like they said that they were leaning more like in my mind, this was really three stories in one. Mm. I originally said two, but it's actually three because you have the segregation story mm-hmm. that you can run on a number of levels, overlord Salonians, standard Salonian to quote unquote mutt Salonian, whichever way. Like you, you can play that different ways. Mm-hmm. So you have the segregation part. You also have the colonization aspect. Now, I said I hated the way the colonization part was done in Colony in Space. Mm-hmm. Here was another opportunity for them to talk about the evils of colonization and the effect that it has on native peoples. And again, they, they backed off. They mention it, but there's never any, like, there's never a criticism from our heroes on what they have done. There's a, there's a criticism of the genocide that is to come, but not on the work they've already done. I think, unlike Colony in Space, all we ever see here is we never see mass groupings of Salonians, so we don't see a large group of people like undergoing the change of the mm. mutation. Like, we don't see any Kai's people. Like, as you pointed out, Joe is the only female. Mm. So, like, we don't see anything to do with, like, you know... Whereas with Colony, we had young, old, male, yeah. female. We don't have any of that here. So, like, yeah, it, it's, it is handled. While they do talk about the effects in the sense of the atmosphere has corrupted their natural evolutionary process, 
it's very limited in the scope that we see because either everyone has already transformed or we just see Varen and his crew and they're like, ah, let's just go out swinging. Yeah. But then you have the third story, which is the the story of other. Right. So mm-hmm. the segregation is one type of story, but then you've got the story of the other, which is mutation is bad, evolution is bad, anyone who goes through those changes is evil. And again, great opportunity there to talk about how we other people, how you know, back in the day and unfortunately in some parts of the world still now children with disabilities are othered Mm. they were seen as evil or you know i had done something wrong and god is punishing me or whatever again great opportunity there to tell a compelling story and they didn't that mutation evolution is bad story i've seen that done before Mm -hmm. in next generation Starting Exploration episode, Transfigurations, had the exact same thing of a people where some people are going through a change and they're seen as being radicals or they're seen as being other and they're hunted down and they're killed and they become a great, bright, glowy Omidasala type mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And then they, like, it's literally the exact same, <laughs> but like 10 million times better. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that story has its flaws as well, but like it's done so much better. So, like for me, I think it was boring. I wanted yeah. it to end. It didn't. It didn't comment on the things it should have. I don't know why they shied away from it. I I really really don't like given the types of stories that we've seen, even just the type of story we've seen the third Doctor tell already. Yeah, I don't get why they shied away from it. For me, I think this could have been too good four-parters mm-hmm. completely different stories yeah kind of like Colleen space or so that would be two separate stories mm-hmm. as well this could have been two separate stories four-parters done quite well for me oh, i'm torn. so i originally gave it a two mm-hmm. and then i was looking back over my other scores and i was like i gave space parts a 1.75 I am torn because the acting in Space Pirates was shit. Yeah. And the story was kind of crap. Here, the acting was better for the most part, with the exception of Varen. But it just has so much lost potential that I think I do actually need to drop it below the two because it says nothing. It it comments on nothing. Do you know? Like yeah. to, to sort of go back to the mission log guys... What's the moral meaning or message of this story? There isn't one. Yeah, and like that's the thing like that like when we we just when we set out to do this kind of like we just wanted to discuss the stories. Yeah. And then we actually started finding that there was a lot of metaphors and allegories and any other word you want to put in there that represented stuff that was either had happened or was going on or there was still slight shadows of it left. And the fact that even even without knowing that there was meant to be the um, kind of the representation of apartheid, you can sense that there was these seeds being developed here mm. for something. But the fact that they just they're not developed for a six part story, they're not developed beyond being seeds. It's so frustrating, and I I just couldn't get invested in it. And like when you consider like. Like Bob said, this is the best story that he and Dave Martin wrote. 
that's that's the most fucking surprising thing like given, i wonder was it the best story they wrote or the best story of theirs that got made because maybe the original story they wrote because we know terence and barry yeah you know they have their input as well maybe the story bob and dave wrote touched on all of these issues you and i have with it mm. but the story that got made certainly doesn't and when you compare it against the three doctors santarin hand of fear and mm-hmm. he thinks this is his best even the, like even the three doctors like which has a character in it that people are still fucking raving about to this day yeah and it's like but hand of fear and like hand- axos was weird yeah but at least it was fucking interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it was interesting psychedelic weird shit yeah it was like what <laughs> and but like, yeah like, like with the hand of fear like such a fucking landmark story and again so sometime yeah. two episodes but fucking yeah like when we get to it, it it's, it's so good sorry I, what was your score <laughs> sorry. So, oh no i, I i'm 1.75 yeah, I don't want to give it less than 1.75 just because no. that's right baseline space pirates, but yeah, I'm with you on yeah. 1.75 on that. Yeah, no, it was it was just Yeah, like I I'm just trying to think there now. If we go back to our scores, like I I had like I had the same feeling or similar feeling like this as I had towards the faceless ones, which is in a sense was as I was reviewing the episode it it felt like a task as opposed to something that I was genuinely looking forward to doing. Yeah. Actually, I suppose the space parts as well was the exact same thing. Yeah. I do find it interesting that we gave Galaxy 4 a 2.5. Yeah. And I fucking hate Galaxy. I got the Galaxy 4 Steelbook, by the way. Uh, oh, I, got nice. the anim- I got the animated version because I-, I wanted to have a complete collection because why not? I was like, it's fucking Chumleys, dude. Yeah. <laughs> we gave the Chumleys more than we gave this. Yeah, but the Chumleys were Chumleys. <laughs> uh, but like, this, this is the thing now, like, you're like, if if you get below the markings of the gunfighter, you know it's terrible. Mm, well, we haven't gotten quite there yet. Yeah. I will say I'm slightly disappointed because, well, I'm more than slightly disappointed. Peladon was so fantastic. Oh, Peladon was amazing. And the rest of the season just hasn't measured up. Because like Day of the Daleks was so so. Yeah. I I gave Sea Devils slightly higher than you because there were I think there was just more I enjoyed than Sea Devils. Mm. But like we've got the Time Monster now coming up. And which I know nothing about. <laughs> yeah, I, I have vague memories of this. And again, I watched it before I went to work one day. Mm. And you know, like I was just I I I think I, I'm gonna say the thing. I think Benton gets turned into a baby in a sort of Oh, is uh, this the one where that happens? Because yeah, I've heard think, of that happening, but I don't Yeah, know I think I think this is baby Benton. Okay. Um Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how we finish out. Yeah, um, because like, I obviously like, I was coming back from Comic Con mm. over the weekend, and I was on the train, and I was finishing up the trivia, and I was super stoked to watch it last night, and I was just like, because <sighs> I was like, oh, you know, we, like we missed a week, and like you know, our listeners missed a week, and it's <laughs> like this is the week you come back. To. Yeah, this is the weekend. <laughs> Blasted Biggs. <laughs> I go- I actually am going to blame it all on Biggs. <laughs> Don't base with the redeeming quality. 
Oh. Blame it on the fucking squire, dude. Where's Wedge when you, Where's Wedge when you need him? Wedge with a sword. Wedge out. was a comic con. <laughs> That's where he was. Great, we'll, we'll blame it so on Dennis Loss. Wedge and Mon Mothma were at comic con. Oh. I didn't have a chance to meet either of them, but they were there. Many Salorians died to bring us this. <laughs> you ungrateful swine! <laughs> well, it's like many Salorians died. To bring us this piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. So next week. Yes. Time monster. Last time monster. Uh, last story of season nine. Come on, season nine. Or Come no, on, season like, Was it season nine or season you've eight? You've been do, you've been doing season nine. I got it right for once. Oh yeah. Come on. <laughs> I usually get it wrong, but yeah, I got it so, right this yeah. time. Come on, finish out in the high season nine. Yeah, I mean, oh. Do you know what the worst part is? Wow. Like, if we look at season six, mm-hmm. or season, I've done it again. If we look at season seven, yeah, fuck it up. Season seven, very strong season, and just seasons eight and nine, they've just been fucking uppy downy. What the fuck, like? But we'll see now if if this will if John will suffer the season three curse. Yeah. Let's double check. Yeah, season because like, uh, season three, uh, two point seven five, across the board. Season six was three point three two and three point four six. So, yeah, like the third season for each doctor is not gone above a three point five. Yeah, well, at the moment, I mean, it's going to take next week being an absolute kicker because, at the moment, your average for season nine is on three point one nine, and my average is two point nine four. Yeah. So next week is going to have to be pretty Huge. amazing <laughs> to yeah. make up background. I'm just hoping that my average gets above a three. Yeah. That, that's my bare minimum hope at the moment. Come on, baby Benton, do your work. <laughs> Come on, but, Brig. Yeah. As always, guys, you might have had different thoughts to us about this yeah. story. So um, by all means, please contact us and uh, let us know what you thought. But until next time, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>